episode 126 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 24th of May, 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelim. Ciao. Graham. Hello. And Will. Nil point. <laughs> yes, I, I thought one of you was going to uh, mention that. I can't believe you didn't give us any points, Phelim. <laughs> Too fucking right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's only disturbed the entire peace of the island and <laughs> caused untold economic problems and... Guys who own shipping companies are very happy, mind you, but that's about it. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that the song was utterly shite. Anyway, that's enough Eurovision news. Let's get on with things. Before we get started, um, I need to put the call out for Fostalk Live questions. Without too much of a spoiler, part of our Fostalk Live show, which is going to be on June the 12th, mark your calendars, Saturday night, we are going to be answering some questions and they might be about Linux, they might be awkward questions that we don't want to answer and may not answer, and there will be a random element, let's just say, about those. So anyway, send those questions in to us, ideally show at latenightlinux.com, that's the easiest way, and put Fostock Live question in the subject or something. Or you can um, just find us on Twitter or whatever, latenightlinux.com slash contact, but email is the best. And uh, we might select some of those questions for our live show. So let's go on with the news then. And the biggest news over the last couple of weeks has been this Freenode IRC drama. Now, I'm really struggling to care about this, so I'm not going to give too many details. There's links in the show notes if you want to know what exactly is going on. But suffice to say, money was involved somehow. The staff, in quotes, the volunteers who were running the network, decided they'd had enough, had a bit of a row. There was some debate over control of the network and in the end they moved over to a new network called is it Libera Libera L-I-B-E-R-A I don't know how to say it dot chat anyway we may have listeners who are under the age of 35 and may not know what Freenode is mm. exactly yeah so IRC internet relay chat <laughs> was a thing from what, like, didn't it start in the 80s or something, IRC? Yeah, I think it did. It might be late 80s, yeah. And it was, like, the place to be in the early days of the internet. That's how you chatted, and there was where's channels and all sorts. Yeah, God, you, you're right. There were bots that would reply if you said certain commands. But, yeah, it was. The great thing, I mean, I, I still like IRC. I, I realise it's an anachronism now, but it was it was simple. You could, you could implement an IRC server yourself. It, basically sent raw ASCII over a Telnet port in the early days, and I don't think it changed much in the later days. <laughs> um, but it was simple, and it's it, remarkably, it's remarkable that it's lasted so long and can do so much. I mean, it's so easily to, easy to hack on, so lots of people use it for all that kind of Slack integration that you get now, but via IRC and via open source. And Freenode, I guess, is perhaps the most popular server hosting IRC groups um, and it's you know, with a focus on open source so the Linux voice channel was on there we did all of our stuff uh, Canonical and Ubuntu all of the channels all the development channels is on there or were on there yeah that is part of the story um, and the Late Night Linux channels on there which just has me in it <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know we had that. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Occasionally people come in and say, I really like Joe, keep doing what you're doing. And I say, <laughs> that doesn't sound plausible at all. No, I'm going to have to see the logs on that one. So quite a lot of free software projects have moved over to this new Libera, Libera, whatever you want to call it, network. And all the people who are running Freenode have moved over. 
It strikes me as a missed opportunity. It strikes me as a missed opportunity to draw a line under IRC and get with the fucking times and start using Matrix or Mattermost or something like that. There are open source solutions here that are just as good as Slack and Telegram and everything. And this was the chance for these open source projects to get with the fucking times. You're not going to get new users with IRC, are you? I think there's a certain element of we've always done it this way at play here. Uh, I'm sure I read something off the back of reading about this story that talked about the the average age of, I think it was actually Freenode developers, um, was, you know, 50 or something. I admit, it's probably an exaggeration. But I think it is very, um, very much of a time. And it's just the people who are actively working on those projects. That's what they're used to. That's what they use. And they're not really interested in learning something new. And I do agree with you. I do think the barrier for entry is too high for most people and it must put a lot of people off um, joining, you know, what we want to be open and welcoming communities, um, especially, especially, you know, the Insta generation. Exactly. Now, Mark on the Ubuntu podcast was talking about becoming a member, finally, an Ubuntu member, which gives you various um, advantages and, and whatnot. And the process for that wasn't well documented at all. It was like, join this IRC channel and register with Nixerv. And that was it. Like, it didn't tell you what that meant or how to do it. And, you know, he's been working on improving that. But it just shows how old and anachronistic it is to me. I mean, like, people have said to me, oh, you're supposed to be this Luddite. Like, how can you be saying this shit? Like, you have to draw a line sometimes, don't you? Am I just going to get loads of hate mail now from people who love IRC? <laughs> I think it depends on where you've got your community, though, doesn't it? I mean, if you've built up a bunch of friends that you talk to all the time, you know, banter, even coding or whatever, it's kind of hard to see that get taken over because it's essentially like somebody kicking you out of your own house. I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I mean, if you've built up friends there and you don't know if you'll see all of them on the next channel in the next uh, chat application you, it could be almost seen like you're, you're never going to meet these people again eggs and baskets though man like i back in the day used irc and i'm still in touch with some people who i was friends with there through other means if you really are friends with them then you're not going to only have one way to talk to them are you surely well with the likes of slack how much memory do you have i guess but like, say you lot, right? We talk in Telegram, but if Telegram just disappeared, we wouldn't be fucked because I'd email you all and we'd work out, right, are we going to Signal or, you know, are we going to stand up a Mattermost or, or what? Like, we would find a way to do it because we are friends enough to keep talking to each other and have other means of talking. But I do get it. Like, you, there might be casual acquaintances that you only know on IRC and stuff. And having used IRC regularly for years but about 10 or 15 years ago and then having moved on i i have seen both sides of this and realized how just old-fashioned it was even then like 10 years ago when i moved away from it but maybe i'm wrong anyway maybe i should care more about this and we should have gone into all the details of who said what and when and who coordinated their releases of uh, essays and letters about this but i just don't care enough to do that i'm sorry I find it amazing that there's a crown prince involved in owning an IRC <laughs> network. I just, does that not raise any bells at all, though? <laughs> yeah, and links to that company that does the remote desktop stuff somehow. And 
just there's a lot of politics at play here and a lot of drama that normally I love that sort of thing, but <laughs> were they paying about IRC? I just I, the more I read about it, the more I just thought, oh God, I don't care about this. <laughs> you got your fill of drama at the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, France were robbed and t- Iceland, they were totally robbed. <laughs> They they are our people, man. You could tell they were our people, and they got totally robbed. So, yeah, it should have been uh, Iceland, France, one and two. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash Linux to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved our website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a Mumble server for our community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, get your $100 credit, and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first class always available support. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. So we talked about the framework laptop a few weeks ago, and the CEO actually got in touch with us and uh, put us right on a few things and said the price was going to be reasonable. This is this modular laptop that is designed to be repairable and you can swap out all sorts of parts, and the plan is to have this uh, marketplace where you can trade used parts or whatever. And now you can pre-order one, starting at $1,000 for a pre-built one with Windows, or $750 for a DIY one that you have to put together yourself and supply your own RAM and storage. Now, that's just the the base models. By the time you start adding more RAM and storage and stuff, it it starts to creep up a little bit, but it's not ludicrously expensive. It's high-end machine expensive, but it looks like a nice machine. So I'm pleasantly surprised by this. I am very surprised. Um, I think it's actually a bit of a bargain. I spec'd out a similar ThinkPad. Now, admittedly, the ThinkPad comes with a three-year on-site warranty. This comes with a one-year warranty. But a similar spec ThinkPad, uh, X1 Carbon, was around $1,700. So I think it's actually pretty good value. Uh, And the availability of expansion cards are pretty standard, but also everything that you'd need. Uh, I think it comes with a USB-C by default, and then you can add big, you know, USB-A, the the full-size USB. um, HDMI is like $20. A micro SD card slot is another $20. I think that's pretty reasonable. So, yeah, all things considered... I think they have done well to bring it in at that price. I haven't used one. I don't know what the quality is going to be like, but um, I, I, I'd quite like to get my hands on one and take it for a spin. Yeah, the four expansion slots are basically USB-C, but they say don't rely on that. Get yourself an actual USB-C card because it's quite fiddly to get in there and plug it in. And so because it's USB-C and it's got Thunderbolt because it's Intel, it means that you can have whatever you want over USB-C, essentially. And so I would imagine that it wouldn't be the hardest thing in the world to 3D print this sort of rectangular block that slides in with USB-C. If you've got a 3D printer and basic soldering skills and can get hold of the various chips and stuff you need, I 
think you could pretty much put in any USB to whatever it was that you needed. Yeah, I can't see any danger there at all. A massive light probe battery about to explode. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does raise the idea that there could be a market in third-party accessories for this laptop. It could be a really nice market available for people that want to build something a bit out of the ordinary or something a bit special. Yeah, and there's a video on Adam Savage's Tested channel where they take it all apart and everything. And it is really designed to be taken apart and upgraded. Like It comes with a screwdriver in the box. The bottom panel comes off with like six or eight screws or something that all, what do you call it when they like stay in place? Like you unscrew it and it doesn't like, you don't have to put it somewhere. It stays within the captive. Captive, that's it. Yeah, that's a great feature, I think. Um, and the battery to unplug that is like two or three screws and then one clip. It's all really well thought out. And I, I just wish this was the future of laptops, but now cynical me has to say that normal people don't want this. Normal people want an XPS or a MacBook or whatever that is all soldered down and slim as it possibly can be in light and great battery life. And they don't want to start tinkering with their machines. I think there is a market for this, but how big that market is, I don't know. It also looks really attractive and well-designed and I'm a bit of a sucker for things that look like people have thought about the design. Um, I realise that it's probably going to be quite large to, the, like, not thin anyway, because it has to accommodate those kind of modular components. But even with that, it still looks like nice, nice large area for the touchpad, practical things like a big screen. So I don't know, maybe maybe there is a generation of people out there who who want to fix their own. I'm tempted as well. Yeah, I'll be the same. I said it last time as well, but seeing it now actually getting assembled by that kind of video, it's a really decent looking piece of kit. Um, yeah, if only I had a terrible accident with my really old laptop, <laughs> then I'd have to buy one. Yeah, hmm. yeah. if someone spilt some beer in it or something, maybe. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, well, I think that it helps that the CEO personally got in touch with us to tell us about it. You know, that was a good PR move because here we are talking about it again. And so I do wish them the best. And now is a reasonable time to be launching hardware like this as, you know, over the last year, x86 PC sales have gone through the roof. So maybe now is the time for this as people realize that, you know, once they get that old laptop out and use it and realize that, oh, it's a bit slow, I could do with more RAM or whatever. And they realize, oh, well, I can't because there's no slots in there. It's all soldered. Maybe, maybe this sort of thing will take off and I, I really do wish them the best all right now we are somewhat known for bashing mozilla so in a change to our scheduled programming <laughs> let's actually heap some praise on them and there's a post on the mozilla hacks blog called improving firefox stability on linux and what this boils down to is they have taken this opt-in crash data and worked out ways to make firefox better and firefox is now better so well done, Mozilla. I think they did a really good job of communicating how they made use of that data and how it translated into actual fixes. And I think that's important that it is demonstrated that this data is collected and it has led to improvements. I think that's a, an important message that the community need to get behind. So yeah, well, as you say, well done. I think they did a really good job here. Yeah, it's a really cool article with some of the technical details and things they had to work out where they obviously didn't have debug uh, utilities the same way and various distros and stuff. And it's it's a really cool read. 
you really hit the nail on the head, Will, that if organizations like Mozilla publish what they actually do with this crash data and telemetry data, opt-in data, essentially, it's going to encourage more people to actually say, well, yeah, they are doing good stuff with it. Let's tick yes and let them have the data rather than being wary of it, like, oh, no, I don't know what they're going to do with it and you know, defaulting to no. And through transparency like this and showing that good things come from it, that's going to encourage more people and hopefully have a positive feedback loop and everything is awesome and rainbows and uh, unicorns. And it is a realistic way for non-technical or people with less time to be able to help out in a certain small way. Yeah. Uh, that That's a great thing, I think. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to learn more about it, latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact with us, latenightlinux.com slash contact. And thanks to everyone who's been coming to the community mumble get-togethers. The next one is going to be on Friday, the 4th of June at 10 p.m. UK time. Details at latenightlinux.com slash mumble. And check out the recording from a recent one, Late Night Linux Extra 22. There'll be a link in the show notes for that. It got quite heated talking about privacy and how we all protect ourselves. So uh, do check that out. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. Training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux, it includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux. Android news then, and some good, some bad. Let's start with the good news that it looks like Android 12 will finally let alternative app stores do automatic updates, which is something you've had to use root for. Graham, you've moaned about that before with F-Droid. Oh, yeah, I hate it. I couldn't tell you how old my K itinerary app is. <laughs> you can run the update manually, you know. Yeah, I know, I know, but I have, I do have like twenty things installed or fifteen things installed via Fdroid, and I just update like Termux or whatever it is that bits that I care about. Yeah. K itinerary just gets left behind, so I'm missing out on all its cool new features. It does get new features every day. <laughs> well, it certainly gets an update every day. <laughs> now, this is probably because of this epic lawsuit that's happening with Apple and Google wants to you know, try and head that off at the pass, as it were. But the byproduct of it will hopefully be that F-Droid will get this feature. And so you won't have to root your phone to get automatic updates, which, as we know, updates are important, not just for features, but for security. Yeah, and I didn't expect... This is a positive side effect of this Apple behemoth court case. Um, and I haven't haven't got much sympathy for either of them, but I like this. <laughs> I like this. Yeah. But potentially worrying news is that from August, any new applications submitted to the Google Play Store 
will be required to use a thing called app bundles. Now, before this, you as a developer would have your certificate that you would sign your binaries with and then upload them. And so that you know that everyone would be getting the binary that you compiled and made yourself. From August, for new applications for now, Google is going to require developers to give Google their cert so that Google can then do the signing. Now, they say this is for convenience for different versions of the application, different architectures and whatnot. But the potential side effect of that is that Google could, for example, if they wanted to, change that binary and then send it out. Now, it's very unlikely that they'll do that for everyone, but what if, say, a government asked them to do that for one particular user, and that user downloaded Signal from the Play Store, let's say, but Google were forced by a law enforcement agency to change that binary, that could happen, and we wouldn't know about it. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but there is the potential there. Well, if it's the reason for it, it could be. We just don't know, do we? Just use Fdroid. <laughs> well, yeah. Exactly. And, um, you know, there's talk in the community of, well, with this now, maybe this is the reason to go your way, Phelan, and just use Fdroid only and say, fuck you, Google. Yeah. Phelan was right again. (laughs) 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 Sure, I can't use my phone the way most people can, but I I get to be smug about it. (laughs) Yeah, I'll send you a WhatsApp message about it and you'll get that in two (laughs) weeks when you finally check it. Yeah, possibly. Maybe. I wouldn't even go that close, though. It's interesting. Are these two linked, do you think, in Google's strategy? It's possible, but I I can't see it really. It seems like just two different parts of the Google behemoth to me, but it could be. I'm actually just trying to think it through because Apple has become such a walled garden where this kind of behavior has been it's been kind of normal for normalized by Apple for a long time. It's, I'm surprised maybe Google isn't being more aggressive mm. in creating its own walled garden, but it's always been very vague and ambiguous about it. I don't know. I suppose Android's just totally different. Yeah, I did check with an iOS developer or a developer who has done some iOS apps, let's just say, and who has submitted them. And he said to me that as far as he's aware, it is the same situation with iOS. Um, but he said, don't quote him, so I won't quote him. So I'm, I'm not sure about that. If, if someone out there knows more about developing iOS apps, do let us know whether that is the case. But my understanding is that it has been for quite some time the same situation. So it is potentially Google just coming into line with Apple there. And that's what we've seen more and more with Android, haven't we? That it's become less and less of this tinkerer, hobbyist OS, and it's become more and more locked down with more proprietary shit. And it's become less useful as AOSP. And it's become harder and harder to get custom ROMs on most phones and uh, you know unlock bootloaders and everything. And now even John Wu, the creator of Magisk, has been hired by Google to work on their security team. And he tweeted shortly after he announced that he'd joined Google that, oh, don't worry, I'll still be able to develop Magisk. And then that tweet swiftly disappeared. (laughs) And then I saw a screenshot from, I think, a Slack channel that said, yeah, they told me to take that down. So I don't know how authentic that screenshot was. That was just something on Reddit. But either way, it doesn't look good for routing of phones going forward if they're just going to hire him and stop him working on Magisk. All hell, fine phone. Well, maybe we'd better talk about that at some point soon, eh? As it seems like proper Linux operating systems might actually be the only choice for those who care about these things. 
Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the full-stack observability platform for real-time Linux monitoring. Create drag-and-drop dashboards to easily monitor enriched log data, seamlessly trace requests across distributed systems, and pivot between correlated data for rapid troubleshooting. With Datadog, you can improve performance with proactive alerts, forecasting Linux OS resource usage, and more. Break down communication barriers and add context to those alerts by notifying your team members through the tools you already use, such as Slack, PagerDuty, or others. Try Datadog and get full visibility into your environment today at datadog.com slash late night Linux. Sign up for a two-week trial, create a dashboard, and you'll receive a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash late night Linux. There was a post on the Matrix blog, how the UK's online safety bill threatens Matrix. Now, this is a bit of legislation that the UK government wants to bring in, which essentially puts the onus on website operators and service operators to police what is harmful to children and other people and make moral judgments and potentially face very serious legal consequences if they get that wrong. Now, the Open Rights Group have got a very long post about this, which we can also link to. And Matrix is just sort of putting their voice behind this. It is very worrying. Yeah, I agree. It is worrying. Now, previously, we've talked about situations where legal processes were being brought in to deal with, um, well, I don't know, freedom of speech or, you know, policing what people do and say on the internet. And I gave it a bit of a pass thinking that it was coming from the right place. Now, this one, I understand the concept behind it. They want to make sure that if somebody does post, I don't know, racist, sexist, whatever content, that the onus is on the website owner to get rid of it, to police it, to find it, and to stop it happening. I I understand that's the theory behind it. But it's so loosely defined, and it puts all of that work on potentially very poorly funded websites or you know social networks or whatever who will just find the lowest common denominator method of enforcing this rule which means that anything which is slightly out of the ordinary is just going to get removed immediately i think that this is a very blunt instrument and is not going to be fit for purpose i think it will mean that some content is taken down more quickly But I also think that there will be a whole lot of collateral damage to people like Matrix who now suddenly have to police everything that everybody's doing. They have to scan all those messages and they have to somehow put processes in place to deal with it. It's a very, very difficult situation for those guys to be in. I don't think this is the right answer. I don't know what the right answer is. It seems to me like it's the government trying to deal with the huge tech giants like Twitter and Facebook and not really understanding the problem that they're trying to solve and just having this ham-fisted approach to it, which is just going to fuck over everyone else. And they're still going on about this age verification thing. I thought that was dead, but it seems like it's coming back. It's just such a terrible idea. Like, If you need the government to put laws in place to protect your children on the internet, then you are a bad parent. Now, it's all well and good for me to say with no kids, and I know that you lot have got kids. But seriously, what's wrong with people? Won't someone think of the children? No. Think about being a good parent, maybe. Well, the elephant in the room as well is that this government has done absolutely nothing decent or well thought through when it comes to IT policy and provision. Well, anything ever. 
I mean, I didn't want to get overtly political, but I don't think I can't think of a single example. You know, the the latest example is the track and trace thing, which is you know so many holes in it, so many third parties selling marketing data, and you know a year on now, and however many billions. But anyway, this subject has come up time and time again. I think for the last ten or fifteen years, basically since the internet became this huge portal for commerce and free speech. And they just don't have any grip. There is no one there. I suppose if they can extinguish it with such a broad policy, then they're free to do whatever they want after the point, which is usually how they seem to approach things. And let's not forget that one from a few years ago where the guy was going on and on about the intellectual property address when he meant IP address. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Finger on the pulse there, lads. They still can't stop scam phone calls to our landlines or to the landlines of vulnerable people. And if we can't manage that... On a you know a fixed fixed wire run effectively as a, m- a monopoly through open reach, then what hope have we got with the federated internet? But what's terrifying about this, on two fronts, I suppose, is that uh, they want to set uh, like an example to be world leading in this, <laughs> taking back control, lads. Huh? How's that going for you? Yeah, global Britain and all that. Yeah, which. We we can laugh at, and you know they, they yes. said world beating test and trace <laughs> thing, but in theory, if they get away with this, then it might spread to other countries as well, and that I think is the worrying thing. I think the best thing the world can do is cut off all our internet, shut down all the gas lines, turn off the electricity, and just pretend the UK doesn't exist. <laughs> I think they're doing that anyway, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do a quick KDE corner before we get out of here, then. And the first one is that Bhushan Shah is moving on. He's going to work for Mercedes-Benz Research and Development India. And of course, he's worked on various KDE things, but he's really pushed the KDE Plasma Mobile project forward. So hopefully someone will uh, step in and do that stuff because he's done some really great work. So uh, wish him all the best. Absolutely. And I look forward to seeing KDE inside your Mercedes-Benz in future. Yeah, yeah. The next one is K command bar. And this is like a HUD thing for uh, Plasma Desktop then and KD applications. I cannot wait for this because it's going to be so useful, especially for coding stuff or whatever, where you're you're just wanting a, a pop-up bar to search through things or run things or whatever inside applications. It looks really good. I'm dying for this. I don't get it much, okay? <laughs> <laughs> And the next one is a post about the Linux Application Summit that has just been. Yeah, um, there's obviously some videos that people should check out on, on that. But one of the guys, Carl Schwann, he writes about improving the application infrastructure around KD apps and uh, realized that some of the F-Droid stuff was broken and while it was there, fix up the FlatHub stuff. So if you go to uh, apps.kd.org, you can go via forward slash platforms android see all those for the android apps or go platforms windows see them that way so various sorting ways and uh, i think it's uh, they've done a really good job on that and uh, they've also improved a lot of stuff for discover which will be coming out in the more recent version to increase some of the metadata that's on there to to help people to choose and get a good look at the applications and screenshots etc so good work and what's this telegram slim mode thing yeah, so this application called Talk, which for some people who may not like the way Telegram integrates to KDE, is a fully native Telegram client for KDE. 
And, you know, some people might go, ooh, I don't like this proprietary client that I'm sticking on here. Well, you can still interact with the network. And uh, they've made some changes to this. And uh, Janet's done a load of work and some updates and that there. So, and uh, ways to get it off the KDE invent site. Right. And obviously it's talk with a K. Obviously. Is there any other way that it would be done? <laughs> right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll be covering your feedback and maybe... Graham might have finally got that spare pine phone that I had kicking around. We might talk about that. And maybe we'll also uh, talk about Nixos as well. So it's going to be a packed one next week. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. Mm-hmm.